Good afternoon and welcome to another show of harmonics. This is our last show in 2022 and what's so wonderful about it, I have really the visionary and the creator and the executive, executive producer Gary Carter with me today and Gary's with me right now. How are you Gary? Good, still you're, alive. You're still alive, <laughs> you look great. We're going to talk about Gary, how he, we're going to go through his life, how we actually had the vision to do what we've been doing uh, the last 13 years of doing harmonics. He was the man that actually did it. But we're going to start first with his early years and what got him started. Gary, where were you, where were you born? I was born in Bryan, Texas, um, and um, that's in, near College Station, Texas. My dad was a, went to Texas A&M. He was an electrical engineer. And both he and my mother were very concerned about the racism on both sides of their family. So at the age of three, they decided to leave South Texas, uh, where the family was located. And he got a job with the RCA Corporation in Coronado, California. And he hauled us out to Coronado and uh, my life inextricably changed forever mm -hmm. because growing up in a Southern California surfer town is a lot different than growing up in South Texas. Uh, the joke in our family was if our parents hadn't moved that I'd be uh, cleaning the horse poo-poo off my boots every day instead of taking the surfboard to the beach. Wow, so you, that's, that's quite an amazing thing with the story that you said. So. You went from Texas to Southern Cal, uh -huh. and it was in Coronado, and you said R RCA? He worked for the RCA Corporation, but he worked as a subcontractor for the Navy on the North Island Naval Air Station, which takes up about a third of the island. Mm -hmm. So he eventually became a civil servant, and I went uh, nursery school through 12th grade at Coronado High School mm -hmm. because we were a Navy town. There were only 12 of us out of 250 who graduated who started in kindergarten and went all the way through to 12th. Everyone else would move in and out every couple, three years. Mm -hmm. So we were kind of the only real native natives. Wow, that's pretty interesting. So in that time period, and you went through high school, all the way through high school, right? Uh-huh, K there. through 12, and nursery school, believe it or not. Wow, what was your, like, what was your favorite subject? I mean, you, you have such a brilliant mind. What was you what was you moving towards? My favorite subject was ditching school to go to surf uh, at the beach. Uh, starting when I was five years old, uh, there were three five-year-olds and three six-year-olds in our neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And one of their older brothers had an old 11-foot, 10-inch gun board uh, that was so heavy that you could hardly lift it up. So six of us kids would walk about three quarters of a mile with this thing down the sidewalks and we'd go to the beach. And the thing that was so wonderful about learning to surf with a big gun board like that is when you're a little tiny kid, mm -hmm. you, you, 
you can't pearl. Pearling is when you walk the nose and the nose goes under and you fall off, mm -hmm. right? But when you're a little kid and, and a board won't sink, right. you can walk all over that thing. And we, we, could, <laughs> we learned to surf really well on this big thing. Uh, and it wasn't until I turned about seven and a half that I started actually dealing with the natural consequences of pearling because I finally gained enough weight to cause the nose to go under. But for about two years, it was like heaven on a surfboard because you could not make it sink. So how long did you surf from? Did you surf all the way from to age, 20 years? From age or? five until age 20. Really? Every, almost every day, especially when I got suspended from high school was my favorite time because for punishment, they would say, uh, I got suspended for things like leaving my shirt tail out. They were minor crimes, mm -hmm. but they were enough to get suspended. Mm -hmm. So usually a suspension was one day, two days, never more than five days. Mm -hmm. uh, I prayed for the five-day suspensions. <laughs> because you. You're still a radical. You're still a radical. <laughs> and uh, so w what was wonderful was I figured out that one of the ways to get suspended for five days was to grow facial hair. So starting about a sophomore, I began to grow my mustache in and didn't shave it. And the vice principal would actually look for me in the hallways to see whether I had complied with the no facial hair rule. And, and also, I began to grow my hair long at that point, And they had a strict policy that your hair could not touch your collar. Interesting. And so uh, I always made sure it just touched my collar so that when he found me, I'd say, you caught me. I, I suppose you're going to suspend me now. And he goes, well, I have no choice. He liked me, actually. Right. His name was Dr. Oliver. Mm -hmm. I really liked him, too. But he had no choice. He was a very fair and equitable distributor of the natural consequences of growing your hair in your face. So the minute he would suspend me, I'd call my dad at work, and, he, and he'd call me. And the only reason I ever called him at work was to let him know I had to go home because both my parents worked, so I was a latchkey kid. Mm -hmm. And he... Uh, he would say, you got suspended again, didn't you? And he goes, well, just don't, don't hurt yourself and don't kill anybody. And I would say, I won't. I'm going surfing. I'm going surfing. surfing. Yeah. Wow, that's and wild. I have a really uh, fun, I can prove that I surfed because in those days, older surfers were very territorial and did not want you to surf. And, and Coronado only has four beaches, North Beach, G Beach, Central Beach, and South Beach. So no matter where you go, there's always a surfer there who's always claimed the territory, and he's bigger than you are, meaner than you are, and was going to... So I've got uh, some scars on my head where they run over you... and on their surfboard? With their surfboard and skeg you. And so one time, actually, I got my scalp lifted up a little bit. Oh. But the good news is salt water naturally debreeds the, the wound mm -hmm. and uh, disinfects it. So never really... Only I think the most I ever got was 33 stitches. <laughs> So. Wow. In, so at that time, too, you, you lived in Coronado, am I correct? Uh-huh, yeah. So you were by the Coronado Hotel? The Hotel del Coronado got kicked out of there many times because they were the only place that had an arcade. And they had a police officer that went around and made sure none of the local riffraff, like myself, would go in there and pollute the rich folks that could stay at the Hotel del. So what the pro when I was eight, I figured out I got an old stopwatch. Mm -hmm. And I realized that he had to check in every 54 minutes in one of those little boxes. Okay, yes. So what I did was I would start the stopwatch after he left. I would hide behind one of the arcade machines, mm -hmm. the Playboy arcade machine. I love it. And 
uh, and then he would leave. And I know that I had exactly 50 minutes before I had to hide again. So I could stay there all day and play the arcades as long as I timed the police officer. Wow, what a great story. And how long were you then? I was eight to about 11. He was already a juvenile delinquent. Yeah, we yeah. all know that now. I don't know why he is. How he is. I, I was a juvenile and I was delinquent in my thinking. There's no question. That's, that's great. So there's a, we have discussed this before uh, in our own private conversations. You you met Marilyn Monroe and, and somebody took a picture of you. Was that when they were doing the movie Some Like It Hot? That's absolutely correct. Uh, they were uh, filming Some Like It Hot at the Hotel Del Coronado, mm -hmm. and my dear mama, who is now passed, mm -hmm. uh, really want. She was a fan of Tony Curtis, not Marilyn Monroe. Mm -hmm. So she grabbed me one day uh, out of school a little early, mm -hmm. and I remember like it was a little movie in my head yesterday. Uh, she, I was wearing jeans. I didn't wear shoes uh, ever if I didn't have to, or mm -hmm. socks, mm -hmm. and a, a little blue, a little red t-shirt and blue jeans, and and she, we went down, and in those days, uh, out at the um, north end of the Hotel Dell, there was a little putting green, mm -hmm. and it was completely packed. The total population of Coronado was 15,000 people, but when Marilyn Monroe came out, an additional 20,000 people would come over to just watch her walk from her trailer to the beach and back. And she would, wow. each, and each walk through the crowd, she was surrounded by two circles of police officers. The inner circle was four police officers holding hands, and the outer circle was five to, to keep people away. And so my mother, knowing that I was a, a little bit um, adventurous in my thinking, she had a pencil, which she had stolen from the government. She worked for the civil service. And some paper, which she had stolen from the government uh, in her purse. <laughs> Uh, she gave me this pencil, and she gave me, it was a colored pencil, I remember, mm -hmm. and these torn up pieces of paper. And she, she said, well, if you can do it, which I don't think you can, because those police officers look serious, go get her autograph, right? So here was my idea. I held the pencil in my mouth, mm -hmm. I stuffed the paper in my pocket, and I got down on my hands and knees and crawled through the feet, and they could not drop their arms. They tried to kick me, but they couldn't stop me. Mm -hmm. And I stood up inside the inner circle with Marilyn and walked with her for about, oh, maybe 20 yards mm -hmm. and had my little pencil and my piece of paper, and she stopped the police officers from kicking me. Mm -hmm. And she said, she, went, she didn't say anything, but she put her hand out as if to say, just let him walk with me, just a kid. Mm -hmm. And she took my pencil and she gave me her autograph mm -hmm. and patted me on the head. And the thing I remember most was that her skin was so white mm -hmm. in the sunlight, it practically glowed. I probably didn't realize as a kid how much makeup she had on. Mm -hmm. And she was wearing this bathing cap mm -hmm. with the strap dangling. Mm -hmm. And she had on a robe and this incredible bathing suit. And I just remember that when I looked up like this, all I could really see was her breasts sticking out and then her beautiful and quite loving face above it. And I was struck with her, that she just glowed with kindness. I couldn't describe it any other way. So I dutifully got my photograph. I said, thank you, Miss Monroe. 
And I got down on my hands and knees and crawled out. And to show you how famous she was, people don't understand this. Mm -hmm. Standing up on a hill under a, a tree, just watching this whole morass of people, it was a rock concert, you know? And without anybody wanting their autograph was Tony Curtis, Jack Lemon, and Joey Brown. Mm -hmm. And so I just went over to them with the other pieces of paper and, and asked for their autograph. And as I'm standing there, George Raft walks up. Wow. And Joey Brown says, wouldn't you like to have Mr. Raft's autograph too? Mm -hmm. And I said, who's Mr. Raft? Which wasn't a kind thing to say. I just, you know, didn't I didn't know. know. Uh, it was one of the most famous gangsters in the history of the earth. Right. And a great actor. Right. And, I, and later I learned to appreciate him. But at the time, I still feel kind of embarrassed about it to this day. Mm -hmm. But the main thing that got me was when Marilyn Monroe was around, mm -hmm. no other stars existed. Nobody cared about them. They could have walked around naked and nobody would have cared wow. because Marilyn was in the vicinity. Wow. And it's just people just don't understand the impact she had on the culture. Mm -hmm. And the one autograph that I wish I had gotten to this day, the one that actually now would have been more important to me is Billy Wilder's autograph. Oh, gosh, I would have given anything. Was he in the facility also? In he was standing right up there. He was down on the beach waiting to direct her in a scene. So you said when that was being done, when you crawled underneath that security and everything, yeah. that was like over 20,000, 30,000 people just hanging around. Well, there was a good, easy 20,000. It was so many people there mm -hmm. that they leaked off of the property and down the main drag of Coronado Orange Avenue trying to get to it. And uh, the, the small Coronado police force was totally incapable of coping with oh, these kinds of crowds. It was a small town, you know. So that's fabulous. So, wow, to actually how you, she was almost like Angelica-like. Angelic, absolutely, is a great way to say it. Mm -hmm. And she kind of glowed. I don't know how to describe that. Maybe it's just my memory, I don't know. But I do know this, she did pat me on the head and I've never washed my head since. <laughs> I've kept her DNA intact on my that's head. A, it is there. It is there. <laughs> so that's a very interesting story. That's an historical point. Probably a lot of people, you were probably the only child that actually went through that little line. To my knowledge, uh, I don't think anybody was as stupid as I was to try to go through two police so lines. When, I'm, I'm going to tell you a little story about me. When Marilyn died, I was like, I think I was eight or nine years old or ten. Um, I was in front of the TV, the black and white TV that we had at home in Oakland. I was crying. I was getting ready to go to sleep. I cried when I heard it, and I was older than you. And I was just bawling, and my mother came in. And she goes, what's wrong, Gregory? And I go, they just said that Marilyn Monroe was dead. And she goes, why, why are you crying? And I go, because I love Marilyn Monroe. I already knew it at that time that I would love women. Well, I was around Italian, Portuguese, Hawaiian women. I knew that, but... It's interesting how she still impacts us today. Oh, uh, she was born the same year as my mother. And so my mother had a particular connection because they were born the same year. And they both came from uh, poor upbringing, mm -hmm. uh, lower socioeconomic mm -hmm. upbringing. And so um, for some reason, my mother just had this connection as well. Wow, and you were so lucky. I was lucky. lucky. And of course, the Hotel Del was right in our town. And in your town. Every every movie star that ever lived, presidents stayed there. You could go down and hang out and see somebody that was famous. Exactly. And my, I was going to wear that today, but I felt like 
Miles was the way to wear today. I, my daughter I bought me a Coronado T-shirt. I was going to wear. I had that, and I said, I I like Miles. Miles Davis is a god to yes. me. I worship Miles it, exactly. Davis. Exactly. So in your in your life, we're going to move up a little more. What got you? What got Gary Carter into music? Girls. Uh, it, what happened was is that I. Um, had this crush on this girl, mm -hmm. and she was older than I was. Um, and so I used to hang around her and sort of worship her from afar, right? Mm -hmm. And then one day she announced that she had a new boyfriend who was even older than her. And this was during the resurgence, the explosion of folk. Mm -hmm. And so this guy shows up to this uh, sort of gathering at the Methodist church, mm -hmm. and I noticed that every girl in the MYF, the Methodist Youth Fellowship, was magnetized to this guy because he had an acoustic guitar with gut strings, with nylon strings, and could sing all the Peter, Paul, and Mary and Four Letterman stuff. And I just remember thinking to myself, his voice was crap, and he could play three chords, but by God, those girls went crazy over him. And I thought to myself, how hard could it be? You know, I could play. I, I don't know what, how to do it, but I'm sure I could learn. So I convinced my mom that it was time for me to learn to play the guitar. How old were you? I was 14 and a half. Okay. And in those days, they had green stamps, and its number one competitor were blue chip so stamps. True. So true. Right? So my mom took me to the Blue Chip Stamp Redemption Center, mm -hmm. and... Uh, she traded seven and a half books of blue chip stamps, which took about a year to accumulate. And she got me a Japanese-made guitar with the word Granada at the top. I still have it in the closet in the other room. Oh, 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 yeah. and, and, it, and, and I didn't realize it, but magically those Japanese Granadas turned out to be really great guitars. But it was just total luck. The, the tone of this guitar has never been equaled by $2,000 classical guitars. You've never heard a tone like this guitar. I remember humming into it and making it vibrate. And it was made in Japan. In those days, made in Japan, you know, how it went through, you know, yes. made in Japan was bad, then made in Korea was bad, then made in China was bad, then made in Indonesia right. was bad. And eventually they became good. Right. But this was during the made in Japan was bad days. Wow. And, and so I started picking it out. I didn't know how to tune it. I didn't know how to do anything. Mm -hmm. So I, I began to buy books. And I said, oh, so my neighbor had a piano. And she was a little girl, but she paid. She goes, well, according to this book, that's an E. She goes, ding, ding, ding. And, and I go, and, and so the first time I, I broke the string, I just went ping, and I, because I was going way too high. And she goes, no, 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 don't, are you tone deaf? It, go lower. And so I had to go home, go down to Perkins Bookworm, buy a new string, replace string. A week later, I'm back, still trying to tune this guitar. But eventually. Oh, oh, it's Bob Dylan. And see that little thing right there? Wow. Now, this was a little later, but I, 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 this is how I learned to transpose because, as you well know, uh, you know, when you bought a Beatles songbook or a Peter, Paul, and Mary songbook, mm -hmm. it was never normal chords. 
they they did it on purpose. They would do it in E flat, A flat, D flat, never in C, F, G, A, B. Uh, so what I would do is go through, once I learned how to transpose, mm -hmm. is I would mark up the insides and I, I'd, I'd make these little charts and I'd figure out that you could make, if it's in the key of E, you could also make it in the key of A, in the right. key of D. And that's how it all started. And then I discovered the capo. And so self-taught, I just, in two and a half years, I kind of went through 10 years of study on my own. Mm -hmm. And then I got an electric guitar. And, and what was that? I got a Gibson ES335 with double humbucking pickups you still have at Apex Music Store and, and an amp. And my mother used her hard-earned money from her job to buy me a, a Fender Super Reverb with oh, four tens, good. 40 watts. And a Shure Unidyne 3 unidirectional microphone and a mic stand. And now I was equipped to, I would stand up in the living room and I'd watch TV or I would play along with records and things like that. And I'd also, suddenly at the MYF, when I could play all those folk songs like they were nothing, mm -hmm. including picking, mm -hmm. suddenly now I got to be the star. <laughs> And it's like opium. It is, when you, it, it, it is the most addictive thing in the world to produce something that's, that sounds good mm -hmm. and to have your peers admire you and to have girls have a crush on you exactly. simply because you're holding a guitar in front of a mic. Now, I can't sing with crap, mm -hmm. but I could carry a tune. I had really good pitch. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, I. I would give myself, like you, I would give an A. I would give myself a C minus. Mm -hmm. But I could also do background vocals. And when you do background vocals, nobody cares, really. Uh, so that was my niche. I, I could do background vocals. and. So you, you got in your 14, 14 and a half, you said? And then, all, and then, then in 1967, uh, three months before I graduated from high school, mm -hmm. um, I got invited into a band mm -hmm. called the West Coast Ironworks, and it hadn't been named yet, mm -hmm. but I was the third. The drummer invited the lead vocalist, the lead vocalist invited me, and then in my science class, I had a young man who was two years my junior named Richie Hines, who is the single greatest genius of a musician I have ever known in my life, both a vocalist, background vocalist, has perfect relative pitch, oh and he also is the best bass player on the earth, without question, mm -hmm. can do anything. And he was so good at singing that for a year, he even sang with the um, San Diego Opera Company. Oh. oh, you know he had a voice. Uh, he had a voice. He had a voice. <laughs> And, 
Anyway, so I turned around to him and I said, uh, do you want to be in a band? He goes, oh, sure. <laughs> and then he brought the lead guitarist, which was a guy that, so now that was the five of us. And then uh, eventually we got a keyboard player and the rest was history. We won many, many Battle of the Bands. We won many, um, uh, many car shows in those days because we could do six part harmony. And nobody else could do that. Touch it, right. And and so that means we could cover anything. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we were covering things that nobody else could cover, both instrumentally and vocally. We we could do the full long version of "Light My Fire" and "Nights in White Satin" and oh thing goodness. things that You're other really bands couldn't in. couldn't do. Right. Uh, in fact, it, we prided ourselves on the fact that when we covered a tune, you couldn't tell the difference between us and the, the and the guitarist. record. That was the goal. So you were, you were that you were mm -hmm. that technique. To Plus, do. our timing was right. This was the first flush of this band was the summer of '67, mm -hmm. from February of '67 to October '67. I want you to think about first Doors album, first Hendrix album, Sgt. Pepper, mm -hmm. uh, and I could go on. Right, right. But there's about 30 of the most important albums in the history of rock all came out. Mm -hmm in that 10-month period, right. and we covered them all. We did, you did Purple Haze, we did Fire, which nobody else could do off the first Hendrix album. Right. And because our drummer was a genius, too. And by the way, our drummer ended up winning the Buddy Rich drumming contest because he was a genius. Uh, and to him, it was nothing. He didn't give a crap. He didn't care. But I remember he made the finalists, right? Mm -hmm. and. Everybody else was doing Inagata DeVita at the time, trying to show off with all the Tom Tom work. He was the last one of the 13 finalists. He walks out on stage and he holds up his left hand and he goes, 5-4. And while he's doing 5-4, he holds up the next hand and he goes, 7-4. And if you're now he's doing 5-4 in one hand and 7-4 in another, and every 35 beats, they hit at the same time. Then he takes his left foot and goes, Nine four, and then eleven four on the hi hats all at once, and he did it all until they beat at the same time, which is like I don't know two hundred and thirty something. And he goes, da da da. This is only like a two minutes worth, right? Everybody else is, you know, fifteen minutes, and he goes click, and he just sets the, the sticks down and walks off stage. Buddy Rich stood up and went berserk. He went crazy, and all, the judges go, we have a winner. <laughs> and, it, it, and that's the kind of people I got to play with. I oh was absolutely the bottom of this musical talent list. And that is, that's the... That's, that's West, West Coast Ironworks. And, and here's how they got the name. What was it? Uh, we didn't have a name, and we had our first gig, right? right? So the drummer the night before just opened up the San Diego phone book to the white pages of list of businesses, right? right. And he just went, eh, eh, eh. What's the and in National City there really was a West Coast Ironworks. Mm -hmm. That and, was you guys. And and so we took that name. We later realized it was completely unwieldy, way too long, but we kept it. And how long did that band exist? That from band existed from '67 to last year. Unbelievable. And the same, still same unit or same people. Same, and, and they're all still. We all still us. liked each other. We all still loved that era from '65 to '72. We uh, all got along, mm -hmm. and uh, we, uh, we're all still alive. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
much. That is really beautiful. Which is a lot of people I knew had already uh, gone down by then. You know, that's that's beautiful. Gary, we're going to take a little intermission. Okay. Uh, and then we're, I want to start in 64, and then I want to zoom up uh, into your music. We just talked a little about uh, 67, but then I want to start on February 9th. I want to start there with the Beatles when the Beatles wanted Ed Sullivan, and I'll ask you on that, and then we'll just move up a little more. Okay. There are 16 million children struggling with hunger in America. That's one in five daughters, sons, neighbors, and classmates who don't know where their next meal is coming from. Yet billions of pounds of good food go to waste every year. It's time we do something about it. Feeding America is a nationwide network of food banks that helps provide meals to millions of kids and families in need. Visit feedingamerica.org to help them feed even more. Together, we can solve hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. Welcome back, everybody, to Harmonics. We're in a beautiful setting at uh, Gary Carter's home. We're in his den that has so many great books, and it's just an amazing place to be in. But we're going to start with Gary right now again, talking about February 9th, 1964. How, what was that for you? Um, it had been announced pre during the week, and our local CBS affiliate, Channel 8, was the one that ran the Ed Sullivan show. Mm -hmm. So... Um, it, it, it was one of the few things my whole family did together TV wise. So it was on a Sunday night mm -hmm. and we sat through, um, boring stuff like Topo Gigio and, uh, you know, a juggler and, and God knows what, and maybe one, oh, Ethel Merman, you know, singing, you know, something to do with Broadway. I right, don't know. Right. And, and then... I explained that the Beatles, and remember at that time, the only album that was out was the first Beatle album, mm -hmm. uh, which was only had 10 songs on it, unlike the British release. Exactly. The Capitol release. They did, they saved up two songs every time. And of course, people don't realize this, but the Beatles arranged their songs in a specific order so that it was like a whole, it was a holistic, unified whole. One side wasn't just six songs. They mattered their order. And so when Capitol kept stealing songs, the, the Beatles were very upset about this. Yes. But they couldn't do anything about it contractually. Right. But the only reason Capitol did it was for greed. They kept saving up songs to put on the next album. Exactly. But anyway, so uh, my mother and my father, we were sitting in the kitchen. Uh, we were watching uh, a portable television on a roll-around rack. My younger brother was there. Uh, I was in ninth grade, my brother was in sixth. Um, my father and my mother normally went to bed long before Ed Sullivan. Wow. They stayed up because mm -hmm. I kept saying, the Beatles, the Beatles, the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And it, my father used to ask me, what's so special about this? I mean, we like Peter, Paul, and Mary okay, but this is, I don't get it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and I said, Dad, this is the most amazing stuff I've ever heard as a kid. And if you've ever tried to play a Beatles song off the record, you everything else you can learn by just playing it, not Beatles tunes. They're in weird keys. They have strange transitional chords. Right. It's deceptively simple, but actually every song is brilliant. Right. And so the they came on and... My mother hated the fact that the girls were screaming so loud she really couldn't hear it. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you know, at the end of it, I said, what do you think? Well, she goes, they're nice. 
but they need a haircut. <laughs> of course, something that you didn't like to get yourself. Because they worked with the military, both my mom and my dad. So they go, they're nice, but they need a haircut. And then my father was hung up on the fact that their jackets had no collars because he wore a that suit and a tie coat. every day. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he goes, I don't, I don't understand that at all. That was like another planet to him. Mm -hmm. But they still kind of liked the music. They didn't object. Mm -hmm. They just thought they needed haircuts and collars. So, mm -hmm. um, And I remember at the end of it, I was thrilled. And I, and I knew that the next topic of discussion, the next day on Monday, mm -hmm. That's all anybody was going to be talking about at high school. Exactly, exactly. And that, huge. and I was right. If you hadn't, if you didn't watch that, you were a social outcast. Right, right. And also, it crossed all levels of that. We had the socias, the animals, the intellectuals, the surfers, all these different social groups. They all blended. This is the one topic they all agreed on. It was it was quite yeah. an amazing. I was just a little boy, quite amazing. I knew I wanted to be. I always wanted to be Paul McCartney, but there was never no left-handed basses or guitars when I'd walk in. So I became the singer. Um, and I remember noticing that left-hand bass playing, mm -hmm. and thinking to myself, "He's backwards." <laughs> <laughs> so that I watched all three of those. Yeah, he was three nights and the last one was in Miami when they met Yeah, all, Ali. all I know is that n nothing would have stopped me. And remember, there was no DVR back then. There was None. no tape recording. If you missed something, you missed it for forever. forever. Right. So, n I mean, nothing would have stopped me from mm -hmm. watching those three Ed Sullivan episodes. So, you watch that. You continue to watch the British invasion with, with the Stones, Jerry and the Pacemakers, yeah. you know, Billy Jay and the, uh, the Kramer and his, his group. Oh, the one that really got me, the yeah. one that I thought were geniuses were the Kinks. Oh, when, when Ray Davies. You really Davis. got me now. Yeah. You really got me going. I am telling you, mm -hmm. I must have listened to that song on a 45, uh -huh. 5,000. To the point where I wore out every groove. It's a great song. And and I, I and I had to write my name on the front and back because in those days people stole well, your records, exactly. wouldn't give them back. Right, your forty five. Uh, especially well, albums and forty fives. Yeah. But um, I still have all my forty fives. Oh, by that's the way. beautiful. I'm so, I, I, we'll talk about that at a later yeah. later after this because this is about you. Um, let's let's move up a few years. Uh, you got very acquainted to a great band, legendary band, uh, the four members, uh, and you knew James Morrison and his brother, what was his brother's name? Andy Morrison. Andy Morrison. And, uh, Andy Morrison was my age. We both went to Coronado High School. We were both class of 67. Wow. And so Andy and I hung out periodically throughout those three years. Mm -hmm. And I never, his father, a lot of people don't realize this, was Admiral Morrison, and my mother and father play bridge with Admiral and Mrs. Morrison about once a week, duplicate bridge. Mm -hmm. And so they were friends. And Admiral Morrison for a while lived on North Island and there was only like just a very few special high, high end officers who got to live in these special housing right on the beach next to the runway. Uh, and so, um, uh, so Andy and I hung out for a while, and Andy and I were kind of alike in that we had um, uh, a very healthy disrespect for male authority, uh, particularly male teachers. Yes. Uh, so we weren't great students. Um, I had a re 
he admired me. He told me this once. He admired me because I never studied once, but I could remember the lectures. So if, if it, I heard it, I could remember how to write it down, and I passed most of the tests. But he, on the other hand, didn't have that privilege uh, or that skill, so uh, he was always getting an F, and he would go, I have spent every minute with you this week. I know you never studied once. How did you get a B you know, or a C? You know, and I said, I don't know how. I, I, I just, if they say it, I can remember it, mm. you know. So, uh, but we, we hung out for a while. And then we kind of drifted apart in, as a junior because he started hanging out with a much rougher crowd. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of got back together as seniors because we were along with the bass player I told you about yes, yes. in the same science class. And so um, several times he took me home and we listened to the Beatles. Mm -hmm. He had a phonograph where the f speakers folded out. Of course, I remember and, those. You know, and it had one of those changers where you could stack four or five albums Elms. and they'd go ka-clunk and yeah. fall down. And then when the needle would come down, it was like a nail being right. driven. Boom. And yeah. then it would scratch. And, mm -hmm. But we would listen to Beatles. And his dad was not happy with us when he would find us listening to rock and roll records. His, Admiral Morrison was a very driven man and was very, uh, he did not suffer fools well. Mm -hmm. And can you imagine the, the pressure he was under every day mm -hmm. at the Admiral level? But anyway, so, uh, his older brother, though, he kept telling me about his older brother. And one day he said, my older brother's in a band. Mm -hmm. And I go, gosh, that's cool. Does he play guitar? I go, no, he just sings. And I go, oh, he doesn't even play? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, like, as if I could look down on him, you know? And I'm thinking, I play, you know? Yeah, yeah, right. and, but he doesn't even play, he just mm -hmm. sings, you know? But then he said, but he writes poetry and lyrics. And I said, oh, well, that's cool. Mm -hmm. And then one day I was sitting in a car uh, in Pacific Beach, uh, necking in the back seat with a young lady with another gentleman who drove the car necking with his girlfriend in the front seat. Mm -hmm. And on the radio, I remember it like it was, it was uh, KCBQ. Mm -hmm. Light My Fire comes on. I've never heard it before. Mm -hmm. And I heard, and it's the short version. Yes. That was the AM version. Mm -hmm. And Mike Sherman, the guy in the front seat, turns around and goes, that's Andy's brother. And I, I chills. I just got chills I, right I, now. I am telling you. I said, kiss me later. I have to listen to this song. <laughs> and I remember leaning for it and separating Mike and his girlfriend, stopping them from necking, right? And I'm leaning over the front seat, listening to this piece of crap car radio. And, I, and I've never heard a song like that in my I life. I didn't get that. Mm -hmm. I... Sorry. That, no, that's great. That's great. <laughs> and, and I listened to that whole thing all the way through. The chord progression, the chord progression, listen to this, just the intro, G, D, F, B flat, E flat, A flat, A in triples, and then A minor seven to F sharp minor seven. So it goes immediately from major to flats, back to major, That's and then crazy. from A to A minor seven, no song does that. Right. And, and then F sharp minor seven, Oh my God! So already I'm listening to this chord progression I just can't conceive how they ever invented and then the keyboards on top of it were so brilliant. Uh, what's and later when I heard the lead break for the long version on KPRI, mm -hmm. Isle Capri, it was, it was FM was the only one could play in those days. Mm -hmm. 
I thought, well, first of all, I went home and spit on my guitar. <laughs> because I realized that there was a level of music being invented in the 60s, mm -hmm. particularly the summer of 67. Right. That summer of love. Was, it, it was so beyond anything that we had thought of, conceived of, brilliance beyond brilliance. Mm -hmm. It was just, it, it changed our lives. Mm -hmm. People don't understand what the music from 67 to 70 mm -hmm. did to a whole generation, whether you played guitar or not, right. you're, it upped your ante. It mm. changed you where Life. your expectation of music went from commonplace EAD, mm. C, F, G, mm -hmm. Peter, Paul, and Mary crap, mm -hmm. all the way up to these very complicated, brilliant, the rhythms yes. changed, the chords changed. Suddenly I'm hearing lead breaks and and solos and I, it, to live in that time and come of age. Blessed. I was 18 to 20 in, in those days. And so my timing was just right. The music was just right. The Vietnam War, anti-Vietnam War right. culture was just right. Mm -hmm. the rebellion was just right. Yes. Long hair, just right. And girls, just right. Excellent. Everything Blended. Blended. Oh, and surfing. <laughs> yeah, I lived in heaven for three years. Unbelievable. From 67 to 70. So you, you got to meet Jane eventually. I just, I, yes. And it was, uh, uh, by the time I got to meet him, Andy mm -hmm was sort of had been elevated in status because he's the little brother. And by the way, he looks just like him and sounds just like him. In fact, when they tried to reinstitute the new doors, they tried to get Andy to be the lead vocalist, wow. but it somehow fell through. Exactly. I didn't know Andy well by that point. So you did a, there was a situation where you were, where you guys were in junior college or college? We were at Southwestern Junior College, uh, majoring in skipping class. Is majoring in skipping <laughs> class, okay. <laughs> Tell me the incident about the XKE. Because that was a very famous <coughs> thing, too, of the car. He, this is what Andy told me, is that... I'm sorry I'm starting to get a little hoarse here because okay. I'm getting too excited. Okay, that's good. But... Um, Andy was coming into town. I'm sorry, Jim was coming into town to do a concert at the old <clears throat> San Diego Bowl, which was at City College, apparently. Mm -hmm. And Andy uh, told me that Jim was coming out to visit him at Southwestern College before the concert. Now, remember, City College is in downtown San Diego. Southwestern is way out in Bonita, which is 20 miles away, and way in those days it was out in the middle of tomato fields. <laughs> and so, as the story goes, as it was told to me, Jim gets off the plane and goes directly to a liquor store and buys not a fifth of, of wild turkey, but apparently a quart. <clears throat> and then, because he has a roll of cash in his pocket, <clears throat> he goes to what in those days was a Jaguar dealership that was kind of near the airport and buys a brand new XKE convertible with cash mm -hmm. and then jumps in the car with 
the wild turkey and Jim and Jim and wild turkey don't mix so good. And he starts driving out down the freeway all the way out to Southwestern, out the H Street exit, all the way out to uh, Otay Lakes Road. I mean, this is way out in the fields in those days. And, of course, is consuming the alcohol as he drives. Of and course. then he, when he drives apparently into the parking lot at Southwestern, he parked in the president's parking across, across it, not mm -hmm. in it. Mm -hmm. He blocked it. Oh, so <laughs> <laughs> And he jumps out of the car. Mm -hmm. And by this time, he's pretty much finished with all this alcohol uh -huh. after this 45-minute ride. Mm -hmm. While he's driving out there, he apparently scraped the right front fender on a telephone pole or something. And he gets into the building. And I remember, we're the only ones left. It's way late on a Friday. Mm -hmm. And... And he walks in the door, and I couldn't recognize him because he had facial hair at that point. Mm -hmm. And he and the bottle falls out of his hand across this empty cafeteria. He goes clink, 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 clink. You'd hear it echoing everywhere. Mm -hmm. And we put him in a chair, and he's not 100% there at that point. <laughs> and he just leans over and he starts taking a nap on mm -hmm. the table, and and. Andy's worried he's not going to make the concert on time because he has to be there in about an hour. And it's happened before where he didn't make a concert yes, on time. That's absolutely it. So in those days, there's no cell phones or anything, and we had these this bank of pay phones. Mm -hmm. So Andy goes, you got to call somebody. we got to call the ta yellow cab company and get him to drive him all the way back 25 miles or 30 miles to this other venue. Mm -hmm. And... So I get on the phone, I call Yellow Cab on, with my precious dimes, by the way. <laughs> a dime. And I call the Yellow Cab company, and the lady on the other side doesn't believe me. The dispatcher will not believe me. Because no one can afford to take a ride from Southwestern College to City College in those days. It's too expensive. It would cost, you know, 50 bucks. Wow. And back then, 50 bucks Bricks was a lot 500 bucks, yes. you know. So she hung up on me. Mm -hmm. So I had to call her back on a second dime, and now I'm pissed because those dimes are precious when you're a poverty-stricken student. You're absolutely correct. And, and I call her back, and I said, look, I don't think you understand, ma'am. It's me again. And she goes, if, if this is some kind of prank, we're going to sue you. We're going we're gonna to call the police on you. I'm going to call the sheriff if this is a prank. I said, this is not a prank. We have a a star, a rock and roll star who has to drive from Southwestern College back to San Diego. He's got plenty of money. And he goes, well, if he doesn't have any money, we're going to take that out of your hide, you know. And <laughs> she was just so absolutely, un you know, and it was kind of an odd request, yeah. right? So 40 minutes later, this yellow cab drives up out in the parking lot and we get Jim into the thing and Andy takes money out of his pocket and gives the guy, he goes, how much do you think it'll cost? And he calculated it out and said, it's going to be at least 50, 60 bucks, kid. And Andy goes, here's a hundred. And the guy goes, yes, sir. Wow. <laughs> Suddenly he went mind. from you fucking hippie right. to yes, sir. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All it takes is a hundred dollar bill. <laughs> you got that right. And uh, drove him back and he made the concert on time. But this was the best part. Mm -hmm. In his front pocket, he had 12 front row tickets, comp tickets. And he gave those to Andy for all the trouble. Mm -hmm. And he gave him the XKE. 
So now you're driving back. Well, now we're driving back in the SKE to Coronado. <laughs> And the concert starts in a few hours, right? right? And Andy's got 12 cop front row tickets to the doors, right? And I'm with him. You're and, there. And I am suddenly the second most popular young man in the history of Coronado because we, we got dates we didn't even ask for. We, we, suddenly people are going, I'll be your date. So we actually had two cars of girls follow us to the concert and we it. got to walk down with those front row tickets that cop jim morrison and and we sit you know they, they they have these 12 seats right in the front row taped off right for him. for him and his guests right and so we show up we, we we're wearing jeans and old shirts and our hair is down here and all straggly Outrageous. We look like bums, Outrageous. right? With this entourage of young ladies from mm -hmm. the ages of 14 to 19. Mm -hmm. And and the the uh, the usher looks at us and goes, what do you want? And Andy goes, like that. And this guy's eyes just bug out. He's about 40. And he's thinking, fucking kid. Mm -hmm. And he takes us down. And all these other people have paid hundreds of dollars for these seats, right? right. And they're all kind of... 30s and 40s kind of folks, right. wealthy La Jolla folks. Right. <clears throat> Here comes you guys. And then these guys come <laughs> with this long hair and these girls, and we sat right in the front row. How was the concert? It was terrible. Because uh, he actually, was so drunk? No, it was just that uh, I love the Doors, and I love their music. Don't right. get me wrong. Sure. I'm not trying to I'm put not, anybody not, down. Not, not. But they weren't on their best that mm. night. Uh, they they did. They were they were okay, but they weren't. See, you go those days. You went to a concert to hear the record live, right? And what we didn't realize, even at that late date, I realized that nobody can do that. No, because they're overproduced in the right. studio. Takes overtakes, yeah, yeah. overdubs. Yeah. So, what an interesting time. Let me ask you: Do you remember the opening act? Who that was, possibly? Or was it just? I do not. I'm were you, so sorry. Were you abbreviated or were you drunk? Or were you no, small, 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 no, no, no. And in those days, marijuana was like dirt. So, you know, after 15 joints, you're going, this is doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and it was illegal and you could go to jail for 20 years. That's right. And there's still people. For a single jail. joint. Right. Even in California. Yes. And so, gosh, uh, it was horrible. I'm going to move up a couple of years. Okay. I'm going to move up a couple of years. Um, well, I kind of went to college. Then I went to graduate school. Then I went to graduate school again. Hmm. So, and all that time I'm playing in bands. You, oh, you played in bands? I played band. in bands uh, all the way through four year and all the way through my first masters. And uh, I played bass. I switched to bass at oh, that so point. You, that's when you. Because there's 50 guitarists for every one bass player. Right. So if you want a job, just play bass. Bass, and you get the job. And you don't job. have to sing. Right. Because you just stand in the back and go thump, 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 and yeah, they're just happy to have you. Root notes. You can play root yeah. notes all night. Yeah. So I want, you've told this story to me before, but I want, the, I want the audience to hear this story because I thought it was so amazing. The first time you heard Led Zeppelin, where was that and how did that happen? I was sleeping in my bedroom after staying up all night in a house that we had that was right on the alley in Coronado. Mm -hmm. And our drummer, a gentleman named David Vaughn, who was the single greatest vocalist and greatest drummer I have ever, 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 ever worked with out of 50 bands. He's the one that won. He, he won, yeah. And yeah. 
but he was also a fanatic on car stereos. So what he did was, is he figured out a way, he was the first person to ever have a cassette player that wasn't a four track or eight track. Mm -hmm. The first person I ever knew that could play a cassette in his car. Okay, this was 1969 and he also was in marching band and he also was in the jazz band and all that kind of, so he one Sunday afternoon climbed up the poles at the football field and got the the horns off of the PA system that were way up high and borrowed them. <laughs> and then he installed them on the rack on top of his VW Bug, which was his pride and joy, right? Yeah. And he put the output of this thing with a special 500 watt amplifier he kept in the thing that went through it up to these horns, which were the only, in those days, that was the only thing that could take it. Mm -hmm. And of course, remember, that's all treble, there's no bass. So it goes 10 times farther on the outside. And our, the parking lot behind our house was right next to the window. Mm -hmm. So he drives up right next to the what window with the this? two horns. This was about five o'clock in the morning, maybe 5.30. And he points them in the, right through the glass. And of course it's summer, so the, the, they're cranked open. Right. And he plays Dazed and Confused off the first album. And so loud that it broke the window to my bedroom. It, I remember I'm in a dead of sleep and I, and I probably went to bed only an hour earlier myself, right? So I'm like comatose. And all of a sudden I hear Jimmy Page wailing through this. And of course Robert Plant's voice is like could break glass by itself, right? And it's cranked up to about 4 million dB through these outdoor horns, through a special amplifier off a cassette. And I sat up like this in bed, and my mom and dad came running out of their bedroom. What's going on? What's going on? Right? It woke up every neighbor within a block and a half. The uh, two neighbors called the police. Um, and he drove away just in time, so I got to deal with the police. Oh, <laughs> how funny. Anyway, that's the, that was the first Led Zeppelin song I ever heard. Was Days and Confused. Days and Confused off of his horns on the top of his Volkswagen van at 5.30 in the morning. Oh, what a great story. <laughs> yeah. So let Thank me you, David, wherever you are. I, I, I think that's one of the best stories in the history of your life. Watching Jimi Hendrix, you've seen him up close, but looking up at him, where was that? It was at uh, Devonshire Downs uh, at Monterey Pop 2. Mm -hmm. You remember Monterey Pop in 66, so it, they moved it because it got too big, and they mm -hmm. moved it to this field, and a friend of mine, Bobby Pickford, and I decided to go there, and we couldn't talk anybody else to going with us, so we drove up in his van, and we had no money and no food, and we didn't know. I, we just thought, let's just go. <laughs> like, no ticket, no money, no food. What did we think was going to happen? Mm -hmm. And we were going to sleep in the van like we did a million times. And we went around the back of the, that had these giant 10-foot fences everywhere, and the stage was three stories tall, but it was filled in with chain-link fence material okay. and canvas. So we just went around to the back, of the back and there was an actual chain link gate you could go through 
and it wasn't locked. And so we just go, well, wonder what's in here. It was dark, huge, and you could hear the drummer and the bass going thump, 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 thump up top. And, but we couldn't really hear the treble much because it was closed in with canvas. So I just go in, we close it, we tiptoe through the entire link to the front. We parted the canvas on the front and I went like this and I, I looked straight up three stories and standing at the edge with the mic right on the edge and Hen was Hendrix playing guitar. Oh and I had goodness. seen him twice before, so I knew who, and I, of course, you watched him on TV. Right. I knew who exactly that was. I had memorized every Hendrix album by that point. And I looked up, and, and I turned back to Bobby, and I go, it's Hendrix right there. And he goes, no, no, it's not. He wouldn't believe me. And then he poked up, and he goes, oh, my God. <laughs> so luckily when Hendrix is on stage, nobody's paying attention down low to the bottom of the stage, and the, it's dark. Right. It's at night, right? So we went on through and just pretended like we were in the audience, and and there we were, right well, there, right there, and we stayed in and we never left for three days. So we got in on a Friday night, and and Hendrix remember when he was he played the Monday morning of Woodstock and said, "I'm never doing that again." Mm -hmm. So they put him in the first night at at this at that Monterey, Monterey Pop thing, oh. and what so it was story. really. Uh, uh, you know, I could be wrong about that. You know what? I did get that wrong. Wrong chronology. Woodstock's after Monterey Pop, mm -hmm. too. I'm pretty sure, I think. Mm -hmm. We'd have to look that. it up. I'll have to it's look okay. it up. It's okay. We'd have. So I'm going to change gears a little okay. bit. You worked for Stan Lee. I did. Uh, I've always been a comic book collector since mm -hmm. I was uh, seven years old. Mm -hmm. And it led to putting out magazines and books about comic book collecting. And mm -hmm. Uh, there's a sort of the Bible of that industry is the Overstreet Comic Book Price Guide, of which yes. I was privileged to be the uh, editor-in-chief for a few years. Mm -hmm. uh, then we came back, and Lisa and I worked on that magazine. She was the art director for that magazine called did Comic she... Book Marketplace. She did all that layout and design work. Um, and it's Batman. It, yeah, it's and Batman the Joker. And Joker. Yeah, yeah. We, there, we put out together, we did 83 issues. Each one was practically like a research book, so we don't even know how we did it. So is this an original? This is an original one right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, that's what mm -hmm. that looked like. Um, and so during that time, uh, Stan Lee called me back, and he had left Marvel for a short period of time and started Stan Lee Enterprises, mm -hmm. and they wanted to start the Stan Lee portal online, and mm -hmm. they didn't have enough material and I had plenty of stockpiled material because mm -hmm. I knew every collector and every author in the mm -hmm. country at mm -hmm. that point. So uh, they called me and said come on up and they hired me mm -hmm. until the company went down. Mm -hmm. So that was a fun time. So there and, is... and she, Stan loved Lisa. Of we have pictures, many pictures of the of three Stan of us together. So when, what, what moved you to just, you started uh, collecting comic books at the age of seven? Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, Back when nobody ever thought they'd be valuable. Yes. And then suddenly they're becoming more and more valuable. And then in 1970, mm -hmm. when the price guides started, that sort of codified the fact that mm -hmm. they had antique value mm -hmm. and were kind of rare, actually. So um, what is the most ex expensive or... A, a comic book that you ever held or what is the most expensive? Action Comics number one, June 1938, the mm -hmm. first appearance of Superman, created by uh, 
two young lads, mm -hmm. teenagers, mm -hmm. named uh, Siegel and right? Schuster. Yes. And uh, they were from the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had the privilege of meeting Jerry Siegel once. I mm -hmm. And got to meet Joe Schuster once, but not together. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it changed everything. When Superman was in Action Comics number one in June 1938, he was on the cover lifting a car, right? And everybody doesn't understand Superman. You know, everybody else in that world was a regular person whose alter ego put on a mask, a cape, and fought crime. Mm -hmm. Superman was an alien from another planet whose regular person was the superhero and whose alter alias was Clark Kent, a regular person. Just the opposite. It was a revolutionary concept, mm -hmm. totally revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And um, and people always wonder why Superman continues to endure is because the story is revolutionary. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It is not your average put on a cape and fight crime. Mm -hmm. It's an alien from an. It's a science fiction story, right. and that's why it has endured to this day. You are you. You just mentioned the point where I was just about ready to talk to you about. Science fiction in your life is a very big deal, isn't it? Oh, it's, I live for it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's my obsession. Mm -hmm. uh, I love science fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, it is uh, people creating stories about mm -hmm. the future before the future happens. Mm -hmm. So it is the ultimate expression of imagination, in my opinion. So you watch The Outer Limits, and you must have wa I watched watch every episode of The Outer Limits, every Twilight episode Zone. of The Twilight Zone. I lived for those shows. So that was there, and they were... They were revolutionary for the time. Exactly. And by the way, great literature. Right. I'm telling you, the people who wrote for Outer Limits and particularly Rod Serling and some of the other yes, two guys yes. that wrote for Twilight Zone, mm -hmm. these are consummate writers. They're, they're, this is not schlock. This mm -hmm. is not, this is not, uh, you know, uh, this is not uh, cat women on the moon right. crap. This is really good literature. Still holds its time. Oh, it still today. holds up today. I, I read some stuff about Sterling. I'm I'm so sad that he died so young. I guess he yeah. was a, a consumed with smoking so much. Well, he was a fanatic chain smoker, and at one point he was smoking eight packs a day. <laughs> That's a lot of cigarettes. A lot of cigarettes. But he did so much with less. His his scenery. Well, that's because he was on the back of the MGM lot. Uh, uh, Cayuga Productions, mm -hmm. which was his company, mm -hmm. made a deal to go to the back of the MGM lot mm -hmm. um, and use leftover sets mm -hmm. that nobody else was using. So, mm -hmm. And you'll notice that he also wrote teleplays that had a very tiny cast, so it wasn't very expensive. Mm -hmm. He also didn't use very famous people. He would always use up-and-comers mm -hmm. who are looking for opportunities. Right. So when you look at old Twilight Zone episodes, they're all brilliant. All of them. Great Everyone. writing, but you'll notice there's very few people in the cast, and it's always the back lot of MGM. Wow. And my amazing. favorite one are the three episodes that use the flying saucer from the 1956 film... Forbidden Planet with Leslie Nielsen. I remember watching and, that, not as a kid, years later. Yeah, so three of those episodes, and the most famous of which, of course, is the famous episode, To Serve Man, mm -hmm. which the, they're trying to, they give this book to the people, and they start taking them on tours of their <laughs> yes, planet, yes. and in the last scene, the guy deciphers the book. And they tell him the title, To Serve Man, right? And he runs up and he goes, don't get on the ship, don't get on the ship. 
And he goes, why? He goes, we've deciphered the book. We've translated it. It's a cookbook. <laughs> That's a great, great story. One of the greatest stories and one of the greatest sets, utilization of the old MGM sets ever done. You know, did, uh, did you remember when Zsa, Zsa Gabor was in a science film movie also? Several of them. She they was horrible. great. Well, yeah, but they were horrible. But horrible the, movies, but, but she the, was okay. The, the, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so when you did that, you watched all of that and things like that. How I lived for those sci-fi films. Lived for them. I watched... Uh, uh, give, me a, give me your top five, or you probably have more Oh, without that. question. Top five sci-fi films of the 50s and early 60s. Yes. Forbidden Planet is for sure number one. Mm -hmm. uh, that's from 1956. Day the Earth Stood Still from 1951. That's number two. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Invaders from Mars from 53, 54 would be number three. Um, the Time Machine from 1960 with Rod Taylor is number four. Yes. And probably Earth versus Flying Saucers, Ray Harryhausen special effects, 1955. But remember, there's probably a hundred on this oh, list. Oh, yes. Yes, of and, course. And so I'm just, that's the tip of that's the just That's the not tip. even the tip the, of the yeah, Exactly. I want to change gears because we're, we're moving a little bit. Um, did you say that you interviewed Stephen Stills and Chris Hillman, or you met them? I was on the radio. I was a disc jockey on KCR Radio, KWCR Radio, for, in, uh, uh, for Weber State University, Ogden, Utah. You're mm -hmm. listening to the Garrison M. Carter Show on KWCR, Ogden, Utah Radio. Um, this, this I did that for voice. a while. Yeah, I, I had a high voice, but I tried to talk lower. Right. Not like a beautiful, dulcet tones like you got. <laughs> um, and I had to beg to go to concerts as a member of the press. Not that I wanted to see the concert for free. I wanted to meet these stars, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I, I went, I interviewed lots of them, but the ones that I... My God at the time was Stephen Stills. Everybody else liked Clapton. I thought Stephen Stills was the single most talented rock star in the history of the earth. Mm -hmm. I still think he's a genius. Mm -hmm. And and then of course he went through all those iterations. You know, after after uh, all those beautiful, you know the the albums in which he was Buffalo Springfield. Buffalo Springfield. But then of course the Super Crosby. Session album yes. oh. and Crosby, Stills and Nash. But eventually he ended up in a band called Manassas in which the bass player was Chris Hillman from The Birds. Yes. And they were playing in Logan, Utah at the University of Utah. And I got permission to go interview them live on the radio by telephone. Oh. This was kind of a big deal in, mm -hmm. in 1973, 74. And so I, first of all, I had to have the guys on the set. They were on the set of the auditorium mm -hmm. bring in a phone, which was there was no phone. Mm -hmm. So they had to run a line to get a telephone, mm -hmm. and there was no speaker phones. So I had to get two extensions for them to hold because there's no speaker phones. Right. And, so, and I knew every song, every lick, every lyric that Stills ever did, mm -hmm. and the same with the birds. So oh, I was a very great. educated interviewer, right. but I knew nothing about Manassas, and they were trying to promote Manassas, not relive Buffalo Springfield and the birds, birds. or Flying Burrito Brothers, mm -hmm. and uh, so. Uh, but it was a great interview, and it was live, and there's no recording of it. They did not record it because it, I said, "Let's just do it live." So we 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 talked for about an hour and thirteen mm -hmm. minutes mm -hmm. live on the air. 
The only people that heard it were people in Ogden, Utah, and the people in the dormitories. No, no, uh, no, no recording. Wow. No recording. That'd be interesting. And I asked them to record it. I, I begged them to record it because I was going to use it as an audition tape to maybe later become a disc jockey. Oh, amazing. But they didn't record it. They, I didn't get along very well with the um, authoritarian. Well, not really a rebel. Just the there were the guy who ran the TV station was a very conservative. He he just wanted to play uh, country western and church music. You know, he didn't oh, really want God, to play rock very God. much. Yeah. So we're going to close this, uh, but I want to talk to you about a band that you were in for fifty five years. It seemed like that really has expanded. It, it expanded your whole life. It did. It, it it. I was the luckiest person in the world to be with these five people. Mm -hmm. Brilliant musicians, brilliant singers, uh, could absolutely. In order for me to learn a song, I have to play it over and over again to really get the muscle memory going. Mm -hmm. These guys could hear it once, and they got it. Oh, so they and were so like I was always the the the, 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 the retarded little brother of this group. You know, they go, Gary, don't you have it yet? We've played it once, <laughs> and I'm going, oh, I'm getting it, I'm getting it. I'll get there. But they respected you. Well, they they like we we really loved each other as a group. And how many how many players was it in the band? A total of six. We had a lead vocalist, mm -hmm. a drummer, a keyboard player, uh, a bass player, a lead guitarist, and I was the rhythm guitarist. Wow. So, uh, Gary, this has been a, a magnificent interview. I know we could be talking for hours and hours on. We didn't this. talk about Chabot College. Do you and want to all talk the to, good things you guys have been you doing. You want to talk about that? I just you, want to say how did you find that I have so much respect for the fact that you took my little seed of an idea way, way back mm -hmm. in uh, 2008 to 2012 mm -hmm. and ran with the ball all these years. You mm -hmm. have my total admiration and respect. Well, thank you. I just can't believe it. And the reason you were picked is because you knew music, you have a beautiful voice, and you are gregarious and can talk to people. I knew you were the guy from the day I met you. And the man behind the camera Come on there up here. Come on is, up here. Is a Come on up is here. an electrical broadcasting Keep genius. it up. Keep it going. Come on, Sujoy. Sit right here. Sujoy, sit right down here. I am just telling you mm -hmm. that... Sit right here, sir. Are you okay? Sit here. Right that here. none no, of this I'm, would have happened here. without you. And you are the unsung hero of this entire project mm -hmm. and endeavor. Because I'm just telling you... If I had had the wrong connection at that TV station at Chabot, who didn't appreciate like I did its wonderful natural resources and its benefit, how how rare it is for a community college to have that, the, the harmonics would have not happened. I will take credit for thinking of the name and mm -hmm. misspelling it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we can copyright so, it. So, you know, I'm glad the three of us are here because it's really... These two gentlemen and myself, the three of us, the three amigos, brothers, or whatever you want, this is what makes harmonics what it is. But it was this man's vision that Sujoy and I always talk about before we do any show. It's always about Gary Carter. Because this is the executive, executive <laughs> producer, and has made, it was his vision that made it all possible. And as, as Sujoy is like Gary, is one of the greatest persons I've ever met. These guys are my brothers. They'll be my brothers for life. It's a pleasure. Thank, thank you for that. that and thank you pleasure, guys man. so much for continuing the legacy after I exited the picture. So you guys carried the ball all that time, and mm. I'm so impressed by that. It's all about yeah, well, you. Ideas are easy. Execution, there's the challenge. That's true.
That's true. Thank you. you. Go and back thank in you for spot? including me. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for including me. So as you can see, everybody, we're a very close family, and it's really a pleasure to be in Gary's home. We haven't seen Gary for a long, long time. In fact, he actually said they left Chabot in when? 2012. 2012. So we haven't seen Gary for, for 11 years, for over <laughs> a decade. And coming into his house, it was just like old times. Me visiting his office, Sujoy there. Uh, it's a grand thing, and it's a grand trip. He did tell some great stories, and I love you. I take care. Well, you guys are wonderful. So... And this is Gregory Korea once again with a fabulous interview and peace and love to all of you. Peace.